Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan, and I'm delighted to have with me Molly Hutch, uh, an old friend and colleague. I think it's at least 40 years, Molly, that we know each other. And in particular, I want to point out your award-winning book, which I'm going to read a little bit of your biography on the back. You are a, a parent coaching specialist who's been helping do educational programs for parents for some 60 years, if I'm correct. Is it 60 years? That's a long time. You've been teaching at schools and workshops. You've designed workshops. And you've helped people basically understand that it's really respect, compassion, acceptance, and love that helps raise children to be healthy adults. And, um, you know, you also know a lot about cults. You've, you know, kind of dove in around the time I got recruited into the Moonies to start on your own, just listening to people who've gotten involved with authoritarian cults to hear what their experience was and to encourage some reality testing. So welcome, Molly Koch, and thank you for all the great work you've done. Thank you for inviting me, Steve. My pleasure. You're 95 years young, if I can say. 94. 94, going on 95. Right. Uh, and on your way to 100 at least. But I read this book before I became a parent, and I have to say it really helped prepare me um, for the journey, because there are no manuals other than this one that I'm aware of for like what you should know as a parent. And one of the key things that's still in my head, my son's now 19, um, but uh, that, that our goal is as stewards to help nurture each unique soul to be their best selves and not to make them clones of us or make them obedient, you know, uh, dependent beings. So I'm going to throw it to you, Molly. Um, because in my in my podcast, I'm talking a lot about undue influence, but I really want to to get your best advice on ethical influence and what people should know about parenting. Interesting that you use the word ethical and parenting in the same sentence. Yeah, because um, for me in the in the influence continuum that I talk about ethical and unethical. This side is about encouraging people to be their authentic self. And the authoritarian parenting and authoritarian cults want to create a clone of the leader or the parent who's dependent and obedient. So that's how I kind of think about it in terms of the influence continuum, Molly. You know, parents don't realize that when they are doing what they're doing in the way of influence, that they are opening up a channel where they, they, the youngster can be influenced through that recent experience mm -hmm. from the experience that their parents are providing, which is very dangerous stuff. I have one line in my book that I love most of all, and that is a little girl says to her mother, if I have to be like you, who's going to be like me? Yes, I love that. And and I I uh, you shared with me your life story video, and uh, I learned for the first time. I've known you a long time, but you were sharing very openly about how, as a child, you felt like your parents didn't accept you as you were, like your sister did everything to get mommy and daddy's approval, and you were like, "Well, if I'm going to be the bad sheep, you know, heck with it." I did it. I did it. <laughs> Right. I but, made the most of it. <laughs> right. But I mean, seriously, you went on to marry and have kids of your own. But um, it, it obviously formed this passion to help people better parent their own children. Yeah, that, uh, that started way back in 1956 when I started. Mm -hmm. And I was amazed myself at the progress that we made. The interesting thing about my groups were that at the end of the eight-week program, mm -hmm. the participants referred to the group as family. Mm. And I thought that was very significant. 
that the way I approach people, first by total acceptance, unqualified acceptance, mm -hmm. especially in the black community. Mm -hmm. And when they feel it right away, they can be open to you. Yeah. I found absolutely remarkable change of heart, change of thought, change of methods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you've discussed how some of you realize some of the parents that were in front of you were illiterate and uh but they were too ashamed to admit it. Can you share a little bit more about the population in particular, the populations that you've helped to teach? And kind of some of the things that you did to make people feel heard and listened to and important. Well, I think the initial thing is acceptance, and they feel it almost immediately. There's no judgments. They mm -hmm. don't feel they're going to be judged. Nor do I go into any group assuming that I'm, going to, I'm there to teach them something. I'd rather be in the mindset of being a support person rather than a teacher. I'll that's you, fascinating because uh, that's how not most workshop and and program teachers and facilitators think about their job. So please continue. Well, I'll give you a good example of this. Great. I was doing a program in, in Baltimore City Schools. These were about 20 African-American women. Mm -hmm. Strangely enough, when I asked them where they were from, most of them came from South Carolina. Yeah. Apropos of nothing. Mm -hmm. However, they did start talking about the pot of beans. That's the way they fed their kids. They had a big wooden spoon and a big pot of beans. And whenever the kids were hungry, that's the way they ate. I was squealed on. Somebody squealed on me and told the uh, director of this program that I had said that. And he called me into his office. The conversation went this way. What the hell are you doing down there, Molly? I said, what do you mean, Bill? What are you telling these people it's okay to eat from a big pot of whatever they're eating with a big spoon and that's it? I said, what do you want them to do? He said, they should be sitting around a table like, like everybody else and eating uh, with the forks and knives and whatever you do. And I said, wait a minute, Bill. When you will supply the table and the chairs the dishes, the spoons, the knives, the forks, then they can do it. Until then, Bill, they're doing the best they can. And that was my approach to m most of the groups, if not all of the groups, was to be supportive. Once they felt supportive, they were open to learning. And if I'd gone into a group and said, you know you people shouldn't be eating this way, you know where that would land, me and them, right? Yeah, 100%. And uh, so please share some more stories because you, you know, you've changed people's lives and their children's and their children's children's lives by the, the approach of, of unconditional love and respect, being a good listener. When I brought up the subject of respect, many of the African-American parents assumed that respect came from obedience. That was the way they respected their parents, by being obedient. And so we had some very interesting discussions about obedience, um, which I think they understood. You know, primarily most of the, the uh, African-American parents that I dealt with simply did what their parents did to them. I think that's, that's true for all, all people, is that, that that's your unconscious roadmap right. for... And if your parents spanked you or hit you with a belt or a paddle or whatever and demanded obedience, you learn pretty fast. You didn't want to get whacked. Uh, you complied. And then if you didn't, you, get, you got put into shelters or foster homes or something else. No, I hung around even though I didn't comply. <laughs> you mean in terms of your childhood and your family? <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Which is why I respect the rebellious child. Right. They're probably healthier than yeah. the ones that are obedient. Yeah. You would know about that. Yep. So another thing that you taught me is to elicit from the parents in front of you what their 
hopes and dreams are for their kids, get them to articulate it, think about it and articulate it, and then you would use those as the motivation for teaching, you know, what kinds of interactions will help you achieve your goals for your children. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Well, you tell me exactly what you mean about the parent having goals for their children. What, what does that consist of? Well, I just remember a conversation with you where you would, you know, ask parents that were in front of you, like, what is your hope for your son or your daughter when they grow up? Like, what kind of person do you want them to be? Yeah. So I said and that. And you worked with them. I said that in a group. <laughs> and this uh -huh. mother said, uh, I want my boy to be, grow up to be a healthy, strong black man. And I said, well, you got one third so, so far. <laughs> you got a, a healthy black boy. What mm -hmm. you do with it for the rest of his growing up years is going to determine whether that is what happens. There's a kind of tyranny in parenting, as I see it. Oh, it used to be where a mother would uh, say to um, a neighbor, well, this is my two-year-old son. He's going to be a lawyer. Yeah, I've encountered those types. I, I would call, get clients saying, my son dropped out of Harvard Law School and is in a relationship with a controlling girlfriend. <laughs> Please deprogram him so he can go back to law school. Or my son is no longer a good Catholic. Help him be a good Catholic. And I'm like, no, I empower people to think for themselves. I'm not. I'm not your agent to get your children to conform to your goals. I had a, a recording of um, a cult leader. He was uh, addressing a new group of recruits, if you will. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that he said was, you will never realize your potential in your relationship with your parents because they have their own designs and efforts to persuade you to be what we, what the parents want you to be, mm -hmm. right? When I heard the, the tape and when the speaker who was part of the cult said that, you heard this giggle of acknowledgement. Yeah, that's what my parents are trying to do. So I have a little story about that. Someone came to my office one day and said, there's a, a young man that I know that is in deep trouble and I suggested he come talk to you. I said, okay. He came, and his story was the love of his life was playing music. His parents felt that that was frivolous. So that he, he uh, was in school in California. They were here in Baltimore. So every time he came back uh, to Baltimore to visit, they would ask him not to bring his guitar. But he did anyway. Uh, after a visit... A friend of his called me and said, I've got really bad news for you about this young man. I said, what? He said, he killed himself. And in the strings of his guitar, he left a little note that said, all I ever wanted to was play music. The mother and father were both academics, and they were trying to groom him to be uh, a college professor. He was brilliant in mathematics, as they mm -hmm. were. Mm -hmm. We don't realize the risk of our, our imposition on them. I had another little story about a little kid who told his mother he wanted to be a garbage man. And she said, why would you want to be a garbage man? Why don't you want to be like your father? He's a lawyer. He says, because I look out the window and I see the garbage man on the truck and they're always laughing and daddy's never laughing. That's Great story. Yeah. That's a great story. I got a million yeah. of them. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I want, I, so my hope in this interview, Molly, is for you to share your wisdom. So stories is one of the best way to share and uplift people. And um, yeah, please, uh, by all means, share some other stories. 
I don't know that there's any way to separate the parent and their ego from what they're doing with their children. You know, if the kid is a success in anything, starting in grade school, the parent has great pride for being a good parent who produced this little genius. It's all very self-serving. Mm-hmm. What do you do with the kid that doesn't have the skills? How, how are they accepted? To me, acceptance, unqualified acceptance, no matter what the kid is doing, is the road to their hearts and to their brains and to their lives. So what I hear you saying, if I may, is like you need to separate their a, a person's beingness from their behavior. Because if, if you're accepting their beingness, that they're in growth and that they will evolve and transform, and you make that, uh, and, and you encourage uh, that self-acceptance, self-love, um, and that life's a journey, it's so different than, you know, the opposite, where you have an agenda, and you are, you know, you didn't get A's, you're a failure, or you're a genius, you're, you know, you're, you're doing so great, and then kids grow up with an inflated ego, and then as they progress in their academics, and as they meet smarter and smarter pools of, you know, more successful academically, then they often feel like they're not good enough anymore versus, you know, what I've heard you say in other parenting folks, that you, you praise the effort that the child puts into learning, studying, not that they did a good mark, but that they studied really hard or that they, they, they really um, made the effort. What do you think? Is that, is that congruent with your experience? A pregnant mother will say, I wish there was a handbook on how to deal with the baby. I say the child is the handbook. Mm. If we learn to read the child and appropriately respond to what we're reading, accurately reading, the child has a good chance to be him or herself. That's great. That that brings in a, a metaphor that I've, I, I guess it's a metaphor that I've thought of for decades, which is people are like living books, you know? So as you meet a new person, is this art of discovery <laughs> that needs to happen as you open the pages and, and, and get into what the person's beliefs are and experiences. I have one obsession, Steve, and that is listening. Mm-hmm. How important it is not only to listen, but to hear without judgment, without prejudice, just to listen. It has a magical effect. So I believe I know what you mean, but can you explain it more in detail for our listeners of what does it mean to be a good listener? How do you do it? Well, you set yourself aside to begin with so that there's no editing in your head every time somebody says something. Or to interrupt a person when they're pouring out their heart. And you come in with, oh, yes, I know what you mean. And then you go on with your own tale of woe. That's not listening. There's no connection in in that kind of uh, interaction. Right? Mm -hmm. What do we do when we listen? We give a person a chance not only to let us know who they are, but to let them know who they are. Mm. That can mean the world to be self-discovering because someone is listening to you. Yeah, that paying attention, giving, not thinking, what am I going to say in response or... What am I doing in two hours from yeah. now where people are so distracted yeah. in this yeah. culture and people are opening their phones in the middle of a conversation, looking down, doing texting while they're, you know, with with other people. I have I seen young people sitting next to each yeah. other texting instead of turning to each other and looking eyeball to eyeball and like having a real conversation. 
Well, I was just talking about people really do need to learn how to be better listeners, active listeners, meaning not not thinking of other things and not interrupting and imposing their own interpretations or trying to say that happened to me too, or I know exactly what you mean. Which they don't. Because no, nobody knows exactly what another human being is experiencing. We can have guesses, but we we can't ever say that. That's a huge no-no. I was meeting with a group of ladies. Uh, was it once a month? Once a month. Wonderful ladies. Mm-hmm. One thing I would not permit, oh, this is very unlike me to impose <laughs> rules, but the one thing I would mm-hmm. not permit was if one person was speaking, no one else was to speak, whether it's whispering to the person sitting next to you or whatever it is. But every person deserves undivided attention. First, because I think they are, they're making themselves vulnerable when they do speak, whatever it is they're going to say, and open to criticism if, if some people have a mind to do that. But to really listen, and not with your head. Don't listen with your head. Mm. Listen with your heart. Because if you're going to listen mm. with your head, you're going to have a lot of reasons to argue with them if you don't agree with what they're saying. Hmm. But if you listen with your heart, I think it has far more meaning for the, the person speaking and for the person listening. Yeah, I'd like you to ex- expand on that a little bit more because I feel like um, so much of the discourse in the past few years, especially with the pandemic, has been head stuff and not heart stuff. And if there's any emotion, it's anger or frustration or resignation even. Or helplessness. Yeah, helplessness. Exactly. That's what I meant by resignation. Yeah. It's like there's nothing I can do that will matter. You know, there's not there's nothing that can make the situation better. I've been doing groups with uh, parents but I've also had the opportunity to work with high school seniors. Mm-hmm. In every case, after, well, some, some of my groups uh, ran the whole school year. Others were eight-week. Uh-huh. And the eight-week ones were once-a-week meetings, or was it multiple times a week when you would meet? No, it was once a week. Okay. For an hour? Sometimes 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Go on. Almost to the, well, to most of them. I have all kinds of, of uh, responses to my groups. Almost all of them wind up with people feeling they were in a family. Hopefully they take that home so that when they have discussions around the kitchen table, they listen. Yeah, well, I think you role modeled it for them. And in a way, you were being a surrogate mother would be my guess. That, that reminds me. The mother they never had. One school, they gave me the 25 most angry girls in the school. Do I deserve this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the first day that we met, nobody paid attention to me. They were busy being angry, <laughs> yelling at each other and carrying on like lunatics. Second week, same thing. I just sat there and listened. Third week, I decided to bring donuts. Aha, uh-huh. breakthrough. Because they went, while they were eating, I spoke. <laughs> Good strategy. Well, it was. It really was. Because this, I learned an awful lot about these kids and what was at the root of their heartache. Most of it, their parents. Like one mother said to her daughter, when on graduation day, you get your black ass out of here and I'll never see you. And I don't want to see you again, which is some farewell. Wow. And the girls opened up quite a bit. I was absolutely heartbroken. There was no shelter for them. There was no safe place. Hmm. There was no one who was really going to listen and care about them. And what do they do with that? Right. Um, I do think I make some effect. For sure. I see all these awards and commendations on the wall behind you. 
Uh, I yeah. won't ask you to explain what they all are, but I mean, you really contributed dramatically uh, in your community. And I only wish that you, you know, someone can develop a, a national program that uses your approach and teaches it and other facilitators can can learn. You could do it. I could. I mean, I it's something I've had to learn how to be a good listener because I have a little ADD type thing going on. So I'll often like if someone's talking and I think of a point, if I don't write write it down, then there's an impulse to want to interrupt somebody, which really upsets the person. And and it's a terrible habit. And so I've had to really learn. I, I did uh, read Celeste Headley's book on on listening. I forget the exact title of her book, but I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was absolutely great. But it takes practice. It's not something that is, you know, something that you automatically know how to do. Yeah. Um, well, in the course of my groups, we never had a problem with people not listening. At first, maybe yes. Um, Mm-hmm. But when they, I I did serve as a role model in listening. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's yeah, awesome. that works. It's so great. So did you encounter with your parents uh, alcoholism or addiction? Just out of curiosity, did that come up ever in them? Yeah, in the parents. No, no. My father was busy working, and my mother was no, no, no. I meant busy. in the groups with parents who said. Oh. You know, my husband has a problem with drinking or like, did that dynamic ever come up? No, because uh, it was not in the best interest of the group. It was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a therapy group. Uh huh. These people come from, you know, different communities. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I couldn't allow any of that. Sometimes somebody would want to talk to me personally. Mm-hmm. That was as close as it got, but it, it stayed pretty neutral. Uh-huh. I had one time where two women got into a, a tiff, and I didn't do anything, and I was criticized for it. Mm-hmm. But I, it, it finally resolved itself, and I didn't have to do anything, but uh, it, it got pretty heated. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I didn't think it was my place to interfere. Would would you have? I don't know. I think that I am not as uh, even um, keeled as you. Uh, I tend to be more opinionated about whatever theories I've learned or what I think would be good, especially if people ask my opinion. So I'm not sure that I'm I would be as as effective as as in your in your approach. I had a mentor. I was. Uh, I had an office at the Jewish Community Center. Uh huh. And one day, this little dumpy man, he must have been about five foot three, came into my doorway. He's he's all wet from the rain and crumpled hat. The uh, the lining on his raincoat was hanging out of the sleeve. Uh huh. And he said, "I've come to help you." I was almost tempted to say, "Who asked?" But I didn't. It's going to be nice. <laughs> He came in and he sat down. He read about me Hmm. and wanted to help me. So he sat down and he said, I'd like to help you, which I thought was chutzpah in the first place. Right. And he started talking and I couldn't understand a word he was saying. No, it it was something wrong with me, not him. So I called a friend, a professor down at the University of Maryland, social work. And I said, I think this man has something of great value to offer, but I don't understand a word he's saying. Would you talk to him? Mm-hmm. So he said, sure. And I told uh, Abe, Abe Abramovitz, who was, well, I can't remember his whole long title, but he, for 30 years he was doing uh, uh, groups. Mm-hmm. So he went down to see Paul, and Paul called me right after <laughs> Abe left and said, He's a diamond. He's gold. Keep him. <laughs> uh huh. I finally learned to understand his language. Uh, his favorite term was literal. You're being literal. Literal. Uh huh. Yeah. 
So A became your mentor. Is that what you're what you're saying? Yeah, I learned a lot from this man. <laughs> Cheryl's reminding me of a story he told. Yeah, please share. He was at some kind of meeting, and somebody got up and said uh, he didn't know what to do. His kid comes into his bedroom at eleven o'clock every night, and he can't get him out. <laughs> And he asked Abe, how do I get my kid out of the womb? And Abe said, you're being literal, which leaves you nowhere. <laughs> Where do you go with that? But he, he was a mentor to me. He had utmost respect for people. Uh, for instance, to, to I think, an, an extreme. He would have a group of people seated around a table, but he would not ask them for their names. Hmm. He thought that was an invasion of privacy. Hmm. Now, if the person wanted to say, my name is Molly Koch, and then proceed to talk, that was okay with him, but he wouldn't ask. Hmm. So what it was, when the, the parent said to Abe about the child being in the room every night at 11 o'clock, and how do I get him out of there? <laughs> and when Abe said, you're being literal, what he meant was, He's literally in your room at 11 o'clock. That's literally what's happening. But he, what he tried to do was help the parent see that behavior serving a purpose and maybe look at the purpose that that's serving and not the actual behavior itself. Right. That makes... I think that's a huge message for teachers and parents alike. Yeah, maybe the child was scared. Maybe the child needed attention. We needed time together with the parents. I I don't know, but yeah, there's there the 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 for me whenever a child's coming to a parent, uh, it's a good thing because a lot of children <laughs> don't want to hear anything from their parents, and the minute their parent says this is a better way of doing it, they do the opposite just to you know because they want to try to figure out who they are. And they don't want to be a version of their parent. Did we also talk? Did I also talk about the little kid that wanted to be a garbage man? Yes, you just yeah. mentioned that one. Yeah, the father was a lawyer, but he never smiled. But the guys were having a great time. I love that story. It's really great. <laughs> and I really, I was not sure if I would ask you to talk about this, but I'd like to, if I may, because um, I listened to your your life history video, and you talked about parents watching the radicalization of their children because they got into cults as early as 73 or 70, 1974. And, and you were the, one of the first to create a parents group so parents could feel like they're not alone and to think about what they may do to help their children. And you talked about helping hundreds of children, adult, in some cases, adult children, uh, to exit destructive cults. Can you share a little bit about that, please? Well, first there was working with the parents. Um, most of them, in their conversations with their cult-involved child, mm -hmm. were angry and um, feeling perhaps feeling some guilt of some sort. A lot of parents, and that's my experience working with lots of parents for decades, is they take it as I did something wrong. Like I'm a bad parent because my kid got into a cult versus my kid got deceived by some cult recruiter <laughs> and undue influence processes were put on there. So they, they were taking it personally that there's something wrong with them, them or their parenting? Well, yes and no. Yes for some parents, but for others who feel they did the best job they could, don't understand why their kids would, um, mm -hmm. would betray them. Yeah, they took it as a betrayal versus the child thinking that they're doing a good thing yeah. to follow God yeah. or save yeah. the world or make it a better place. But let, for our listeners, I'm sure there'll be a few who are very interested in learning how to de-radicalize a family member or friend who's, you know, for example, thinks COVID is a hoax or 
they think you know the 2020 election was stolen and they they're rabid about it uh to, to share about some of your your methods like what did you do to help young people to reevaluate i think in any kind of dialogue there can't be from my point of view any kind of pressure to influence uh-huh not in a real dialogue that is not what you're there for to open up thinking or to give another point mm-hmm. of view is one thing but you know for me my work is to empower people to think for themselves to help educate them about social psychology how the mind works to give examples of other groups that they would agree are destructive or authoritarian for example jim jones telling followers to murder their own children with cyanide laced Kool-Aid uh and and kind of with a questioning loving approach help me understand help me step into your shoes tell me go back in time when did you first meet the person or hear about this group and just asking people you know in a non-judgmental way with curiosity uh to to share the steps of how they came to the way they were before to where they are now and in that query by asking questions in a respectful way it helps promote people to formulate hmm how do i explain what happened to me and often people don't remember key things like I did not remember until months after I was deprogrammed out of the Moonies just how deceptive the women were when they recruited me. You know, I literally asked these women flirting with me at Queens College in February of 1974, "Are you part of a religious group?" And they said, "Oh no, not at all. We're just students caring about the world." Right? And a few weeks later, they're bowing to an altar with Moon's picture on it. You know, at that point my critical thinking should have kicked in that they lied to me but in, instead of me going wait a minute they were doing a bait and switch and they were just lying to me i just kind of suspended the analysis as i got deeper into the cult let me ask you a question well then did you have any gut reaction did you did you get any kind of uh, uneasiness while this was going on so the answer is yes and i ask people that question too like what was your first thought or what was your feeling what etc um my memory of the first big like what the hell uh was after i was invited to a free dinner at their house and met all these people from all over the world Would you like to hear one of our brothers from Holland is going to be sharing a very interesting lecture. I'm going to go in. Would you like to join me? So I didn't know I was going to a lecture, but okay. And in the lecture, people were nodding out, asleep, falling asleep as this person was speaking. And I'm looking and there's someone to my left hitting his thigh to keep himself awake. and i was like this is really weird i didn't interrupt it but as soon as it was over i went up to the lecturer i said what's with the people in the room like nodding out and he said well you're not going to understand what was going on <laughs> which of course made me more curious so i was like you know i really want to hear like what's your explanation and the guy said to me well i know this may sound a little far out but the 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 power of the truths in the lecture that i was giving was so uh d- deep and so pers- pervasive that there were sleep spirits trying to stop them from listening and i went what the hell are you what sleep spirit what like get me out of here <laughs> and i literally like walked to my car in the snow and 20 members walked out in their stocking feet they cuz you take off the shoes yeah. a la asian tradition 
they walked out and surrounded my car and said they wouldn't let me leave unless they promised to come back the next night. And I was like, this is totally crazy. Get me out of here. So I went, all right, all right, and to get away. But then I felt guilty because I said I would come back. And I was the kind of person, if I gave my word, that's how I was raised. If you give your word to show up, you show up. And I came back. But there were things like that that were like, what? And then then with the the workshop, I, I when I realized it's a joint workshop with the Unification Church, no one told me we were going to a workshop. No one told me it had to do with the church. I'm Jewish. I'm not interested. I want to go back. Drive me back to the city. Oh, the we're not going back tonight. Stay the night and we'll drive you in the morning. Like, but then the morning came, oh, the van left, sorry. Uh, I'll let you know when it comes. Why don't you go in and have breakfast? So it was like that over and over and over again. But it, in helping me get out of the group, and this is something the deprogrammers didn't do, but I learned to do as someone who was helping people get out, was they should have gone back to the beginning, my first experience and what did I actually think? Because my first experience with the three women flirting with me, because my girlfriend had dumped me, my first experience was, they're cute. Maybe I'll get lucky with one of them. Because <laughs> I was 19 years old. <laughs> you know, it was just, it was, it was hormones, whatever. <laughs> but I had zero interest in, in dropping out of college or, or uh, you know, changing my religious beliefs or cutting off from my family or becoming part of a right-wing fascist cult. But you did. But that going back to, to process is absolutely vital to help people go, wait a minute, if I knew then what I know now, would I have, would I have ever joined? And that's a big question because most people are like, hmm, if I knew then what I know now, hmm, probably not. And then if they say that, then it, I know they're on their way out cult. It's like, what what are they missing or what's blocking them from the next few steps to, you know, take back their power? I'm thinking of how parents inadvertently make their children dismiss their gut feelings. Yeah. Their inner voice, their gut feelings, yeah. All you got to do is say to a kid, you shouldn't feel that way. Yeah, if it's legitimate, it will stand up to scrutiny. Pay attention. If you're having a bad reaction, it it may be your defense system of trying to protect you. There's got to be a lot more parenting going on than uh, parenting education. There, it's very hard to penetrate the black community with that. They they want to stick to what's been done to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Although I had this experience. This mother had a 10-year-old boy and a newborn baby. The little boy was put on sniff control patrol. That is, the older boy was going to sniff the baby's bottom, and if it needed changing, he was to tell his mother. Hmm. Well, mother found the, the baby with a loaded diaper and not told by the older son, which seemed to be a cardinal sin in that family. So she said to the boy in her frustration, next time you do that, I'm going to take the dirty diaper and push your face in it. And then she slapped herself in the head and said, oh, my God, I'm talking like my mother. I didn't mean to do that. Good self-reflection and correction when she realized that. Yeah. That was one of my triumphs. I had, when all of my groups, we um, had the parents uh, assess it in a little note. You know, what did you learn or not learn or whatever. So the mother said, I used to hit my child, beat my child. But after being in this group, I've learned not to do that. I listen. I listen instead. And learned a different way to parent. And learned a different way to parent. Yeah, it's 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 incredibly important, but it's not being taught. 
it's just not being taught at the level that it needs to. I feel like there's a certain degree of public health emergency on this. Well, I was not a lone voice. I had the unmitigated goal to train other women to do what I was doing. So there was a group of us going Great. into the schools. No. You had a group, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is Cheryl one of your trainees? Yeah. Or one of your students way back when? That's awesome. That's absolutely great. Uh, is there a story that comes to mind of one of the people that you helped to exit a cult that you feel like sharing? There were a couple. Oh, you'll like this one. This is right up our alley. Mother called me and told me that her son was joining the Hare Krishna. Mm-hmm. Would I come and talk to him? I ran. <laughs> So I asked him, what was his attraction? So you went to the parents' house to meet yeah. with the son? Do you remember how old the son was? He was um, in first year of college. Okay. He was dropping out. Okay. To join the Krishnas. So I asked, what was attractive about the Krishnas? Mm-hmm. They're spiritual. I said, oh, yeah? We're spiritual. Us Jews? He says, but this is different. I said, well, how is it different? He said, well, we consider the body, how do you put it now? Um, a bag of urine, feces, and pus. <laughs> how do you react to that? Uh, it was a little grim. And incidentally, another Hare Krishna said the same thing on a panel with me. Mm-hmm. He gets up and he points his finger at the audience and says, what you are is filled with pus, blah, blah. Right. <laughs> and I said, I risked my kiss. <laughs> that was awful. That's their, their view. Anyway, so he wanted to join because it was spiritual. I said, well, what do you mean by spiritual? Well, they're not so interested in material things like, like we are. And I said, well, what's a material thing? He said, well, like eating. He said, well, aren't you going to eat in the Hare Krishna? Well, they do things differently. They do a lot of chanting, and that makes a big difference on your whole system of blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we had a very nice talk. I said, uh, one of the things I said about eating was that, well, you know, when you say um, a prayer before you eat, you're making a spiritual moment out of it. Well, uh, he had a flash of um, recognition, the truth of what I was saying, but then it it went away right away. But we did talk, and um, I respected his desire to be a spiritual person. There was a rabbi in Brooklyn who is a meditator who goes up on his roof every morning, and he does his breathing exercises, and meditation and so forth and so on. So I hooked them up with, with this guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they hit it off. And this young man then went to Israel, went to Tzfat, and became a scribe. <laughs> He's still there. And he has 19,000 children. <laughs> wow. <It's, laughs> may, maybe it's had exaggerated with 19,000, but we, we understand. All right, nine. We understand your point. <laughs> Yeah, actually, the man, the rabbi that I credit for bringing me back to Judaism after, because when I got out of the Moonies, I was confused, and I went on a spiritual search. And but the the rabbi before he became, you know, a rabbi was a comedian. <laughs> so he wrote the big book of Jewish humor, and um, and before he became the rabbi of the temple that I belonged to, he was asked to go along to the, see the Dalai Lama uh, in Dharamsala because the Dalai Lama wanted to understand how the Jews survived in exile for so long because the Tibetans were exiled out of, out of their homeland by the Chinese, and that's why they were in, in India. And so there's a whole book and movie called The Jew and the Lotus, but <clears throat> my rabbi meditates, and we have a, a Jewish meditation group that's part of the temple. Uh, uh, and, and it's not a one-size-fit-all approach to spirituality. There are many different 
approaches. And there are many people in my community and my temple who don't believe in God, but they are spiritual and they believe in social justice and they believe in community and helping one another. And that's that's spiritual. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, it's really, really... Is that a Reformed temple? Uh, so they call it themselves an independent temple. And if they're going to label themselves, they would call themselves renewal. So our head rabbi now is a woman who is ordained in the conservative movement. Um, but it's gay-friendly. It's... it's uh, very, very progressive, but uh, there's a lot of ritual that if you enter ritual, the, the services have that, and then there are alternative ways of, of prayer and, and, and worship and community building in it. It's a very unique place, but I, I don't think I could belong to a place that was you know, rigid or ideological. So, for example, my rabbi, when he teaches Torah, he doesn't say, this is what it means. He says, some people believe it means this. Some people believe, say it believes this. What do you think? And the conversation uh, of all the participants is really what makes the Torah study, not what he teaches, but the conversation about how it's impacting everyone around the table. And I love that. I love to learn. And you do it well. Well, I'm 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 still at it. I'm I'm a young spry 67 at this point and I just finished my doctorate a year ago. I decided to be bold and go back to graduate school cuz I want to change the legal system's approach to the whole issue of brainwashing and mind control and undue influence. So that's what I did my research on and what I did my dissertation on. But it made me smarter, and it taught me how to think like an academic. So I highly recommend it, even if you're not, you know, 30 or 40 or whatever. At 94, I'm not so sure. <laughs> I think you got a lot more in your tank. So please, uh, don't, don't, <laughs> don't, uh, don't, don't, don't. Uh, don't leave too quickly. Please stay around longer. And I want to thank you so much. Uh, it, the book is called 27 Secrets to Raising Amazing Children. I know you didn't like the title. Your publisher recommended it. I wasn't crazy about the title just because it sounds like a title that's trying to market yeah. a book. Uh, and was that, when I was first reading it, I was like, a lot of these things are common sense. So they're not exactly secrets, but the overall effect of me reading the book was it made me approach parenting in a very, very better way so that I wasn't just... You want to tell me? Yeah, because, for example, I grew up in a, in a family where my father was a, the disciplinarian who didn't give praise and always pointed out what I didn't do perfectly. My famous story was I got a 97 on a statewide regents in history, I think it was, American history. And I found out in the state, one other person in the state got 97, and most people flunked it. And I was so excited, I told my dad, uh, I got a 97, only one other person got 97, and most people flunked it. He said, what happened to the three points, Steve? <laughs> and I wanted to strangle him. I was so hurt. I was so angry. And in my own journey and my own therapy work, I came to realize my father grew up with an alcoholic father who used to beat him and throw things at him, you know, whenever he was drunk. And my father determined when he became a parent, he wouldn't drink and he wouldn't hit his kids. So he, 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 he helped me in that way. But because no one hugged him or told him, I love you, I'm proud of you, he didn't know how to do it. Yeah. But when I did my book in my 30s, he said, I'm proud of you. Like there was a journey. <laughs> and when he died in his mid-90s, you know, he could hug me back. He could say, I'm proud of you. So it was really good for my healing. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, and he loved seeing me change my kid's diaper because he would never go near diapers. Like <laughs> men in the you know in that age never did diapers. That's a woman's job, right? Yeah. How many children do you have? We have one son. Uh, it was actually adopted from Ukraine, which has now been taken over by Russia, the place where he was born, at 22 months. And a quick story, uh, our, our Russian pediatrician who lived in the U.S. that we were told to hire before we went over to Ukraine because it was a blind adoption, they told me to, you know, told us to hire someone to go over the records before we agreed to adopt a child because they have a lot of fetal alcohol syndrome cases and other problems like that. And she read his file and said, do not adopt this child no matter what. Like, this is as bad as it gets. But we had already met our son. We were like, no, nah, we're going we're gonna to adopt him. And we fortunately could afford the best medical care to do his eye surgery, his ear surgery, his GI surgery. There was a lot of, of issues. Um, but it was the best thing I've ever done is be a parent, by far. Wow. Yeah, that's great. And my son's still teaching me. And I need to reflect when I'm getting short-tempered on what you've taught and what we've talked about in this in this podcast together, because I admit that I do have expectations for what he should be doing and how to be a responsible adult. And he's not there. So. And are you disappointed? Uh I'd lie if I said I wasn't. And in particular, when he lies to us, it's particularly painful. It feels like acid is being poured on my heart. You know, and, um, you know, if he does something that is immoral, I have a judgment about it. And we're smart enough to hire a parent coach. So we, we actually hire someone to coach us once a week on talking with our son. Does that help? A lot. A lot. Because he, he reminds us, like, what's normal? What's normalized behavior for an adolescent? <laughs> you know, what's concerning and what's abnormal, dangerous, and you need to separate and pick your battles. And he's trying to individuate, so less attempts to micromanage and tell them what to do and better listening and, you know, keep the door open so he can share whatever he wants to share. And so that's the journey we're on. Wow. It's a wow. I didn't plan to talk about my own family in this interview, but you brought the best out of me. <laughs> All I can say is you're an inspiration. You're a model. I'm so grateful for everything you've done to contribute. And I hope that people will listen to this podcast or watch the video, uh, read your book, and, uh, and listen and accept and respect and have compassion for their children as individual souls that they can steward, but they're not in charge. What's the acceptance? Compassion and, res and respect. No. Acceptance, compassion, and respect, right. That's your words. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm glad Cheryl could help, because that was my recollection, too. So, Molly, Molly. good yes, health. My love. Thank you so much for everything, and thank you for agreeing to do this with me. I am so proud of you. Stephen Hassan, and all that you've accomplished and all the help that you've given to this world. Mm. I can't thank you enough. Oh, that's sweet. I really appreciate it. I am a dinosaur. I'm one of the few that's still at it 45 years later, um, trying to thank God. take a bad experience and help others avoid bad experiences or get out of their own bad situations. You've done a lot. Your books, I'm sure, are going to have an effect. Yeah. And uh, you just keep doing it, my darling. Yeah, thank you so much, Molly. Take care. You too. 
That's it for today's episode of the Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website, freedomofmind.com. There you will find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend reading my books, Combating Cult Mind Control and Freedom of Mind, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you fully grasp the complex web of undue influence. Thanks for listening. Thank you.